I think you always have to keep in mind anytime there's a, a story for why something is a good trade that doesn't have any component of what the price of the of the of the trade is, you got to have some questions, right? So let's suppose that I thought it was a good idea to be a buyer of a stock 5% lower and so I sold a put for some very small up for a penny. Well, you're still that put will make you a buyer of that stock down down there, but you're only but but uh, you're giving up all the potential upside of the stock relative to owning it now in exchange to for only having downside, right? So clearly something's wrong. You wouldn't sell that put for free or for an infinitesimal amount of money. The question is, are you getting paid enough to sell that put to justify the risk of loss if the stock was to move down a lot? For me. The best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I've invited one of them, who also happens to be a longtime friend, namely Harry Krishnan, to host a series of in-depth conversation on the topics of volatility, risk, and portfolio protection. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolio. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized market participants and the processes they follow to harness their returns so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much, Niels, for the introduction. My guest today is Ben Eifers, managing member and CIO of QVR Advisors in the San Francisco area. Well, it's great to have you on, Ben. Hey, Harry, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited about this. So, so am I. So I'm going to start with the obligatory question about your background. Um, how did you get to run a vol firm? Uh, what did you study? Where did you go subsequently? And so on. So maybe you can take the lead on that. Sure, absolutely. So I'm an old emerging markets macroeconomist by training, actually. I did a, a PhD at Berkeley, did a bunch of teaching in the master's in financial engineering program there at, at Berkeley, where, where they train quants, got pretty interested in finance there. Um, I did spend some time at the World Bank working for the, for the chief economist. Um, didn't wasn't that good at development economics. <laughs> Thought I'd be better at finance, uh, and didn't love academia. So in any case, um, spent some time working for for a hedge fund in graduate school while I was finishing up. But then, really, my first uh, proper job in finance was on the Wells Fargo prop desk after uh, after I was done with graduate school. So what, Wells was an interesting place. I mean, Wells Fargo is certainly not the biggest brand in. Wall Street banks by, by any means, and most people don't even know or remember that Wells had a prop desk back in the day. Um, we weren't nearly as, as famous as the Goldman folks, but we had the advantage, I think, through 2008 that Wells Fargo, being a very simple bank, really didn't have any of the kinds of structured credit exposures that got banks in trouble in 2008. And as a result, the bank and its balance sheet was in a very good shape in 2008. And we were able to be very aggressive, where a lot of other banks were just cutting and risk managing and trying to stay alive. So I think most of the other prop guys on the street were getting their positions liquidated and for risk management purposes, versus we got a massive capital increase from the bank and got to do anything that we wanted. And so that was really quite fun. Uh, I was the uh, the the quant on the desk initially. I built and ran and hired the quant team. I was head of quantitative research. I started picking up uh, some trading responsibilities in uh, non-equity derivatives areas, and then eventually also became a, a derivatives trader and associate portfolio manager on that on that desk. So that was really where where I was learning and, and cutting my teeth. Uh, the the trading on the Wells Fargo prop desk was more centered around corporate capital structures. So a lot of things like secured versus unsecured debt or convertible bond arbitrage or um, credit versus equity and equity vol, things of that nature on single names, but then 
in working in macro instruments more on the hedging side or center book than a, uh, a friend of mine who uh, later became my partner joined the firm in 2011 when after we had spun the prop desk out as a hedge fund called Overland Advisors that late, later became called uh, Coastland Capital. And that and John Laughlin had run started and run Blue Mountain Equity Alternatives Fund, which was one of the pioneering relative value derivatives arbitrage hedge funds in the world going back to 2004. And uh, John was a very senior guy, and I decided to go work for John, building the new portfolio and business uh, at Overland in that area, and hired a replacement to run the quant team. And so that's, and John was really my mentor uh, for a long time in learning about um, more macro asset class oriented derivatives relative value arbitrage. Uh, so we ran that por portfolio together for a while. We, uh, we started a fund on Mariner Investment Group's platform together called Mariner Coria back in 2013. Uh, ran that together for a while. Um, and then I ended up having to leave at the end of 2015 when my son was born because I was commuting back and forth from between San Francisco and New York every week to do that, which, uh, which is a lot of free, frequent flyer miles, but isn't that, th that manageable once you have kids. Spent some time on non-compete and then, and then I started QBR. Cool. Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, given your macro background, why didn't you join a global macro fund instead of a, a vol fund? Or start so, a vol strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately in life, uh, the way that life works, right, is that you're doing a certain set of things and you say, what's the next interesting thing? What's the right next step? And, and there's various opportunities available and you do what makes sense. And that leads to some path that, you know, hopefully turns out well. Um, you know, when I was in, in grad school, uh, let's see, what would, you know, back in the mid 2000s, um, I did. I did have a strong preference to be in California. I was, you know, born and raised and grew up in California, and it's a, a great place to be. Um, there aren't really uh, so. So San Francisco and LA do have some hedge funds. They don't have a lot of hedge funds. There, I would say San Francisco's more boutique, long short equity in tech and healthcare focused, and then a couple of asset managers. Right, LA has some credit and a few other things. Neither is really a big macro town, right? Macro is more of a New York and London and, uh, and other places thing. I think if I had found a macro fund that wanted to offer me a job at the time, that would have been great. Cool. Uh, do you use any of your academic training, your sort of your development economics training? Does, has it helped you? Has it hurt you? I, I know a lot of people have to unlearn stuff when they get into the industry. Do you have any comments there? So I, I would say in a specific sense, no, absolutely not. No, economics is not very useful. In, a, in the general sense of, you know, going to graduate school in economics, I think like in any technical discipline, right, you learned a bunch of math, you learned to program, you learned to do statistics and econometrics, and that's all useful at a general level to build on to solve different kind of problems. But um, certainly like the specific kinds of models that academic economists build, you know, generally don't have any particular kind of useful applications, right? That's in some sense, just not what economics is about. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't have to, I don't think I really had to unlearn things. I think it depends on how much maybe you believed in those models or those tools uh, in, in, in your circumstance, right? So an academic economist uh, who, who really likes real business cycle theory and thinks that it, it, it really does something useful might have to unlearn that. I, I'm not sure I ever, I went to, I was, a, I was at Berkeley, right? So Berkeley's, Berkeley's a great place in that uh, the department there is very good. It's full of applied empirical people who are pretty skeptical of dogma. And so there wasn't a lot of dogma needed to unlearn. I think it, the culture uh, of that department is, is, is really great and focused on th you know, how things work in the real world. Cool. Uh, now, before we dive into uh, sort of more invest investment-oriented things, I'd like to talk a little bit about your Twitter feed, which I really enjoy. And I'm very, I'm a little bit angry that you stole DJ D by Deval. Not that I would have thought of it, but <laughs> you know, with all the higher-order Greeks out there, um, you know, Vanna and Volga and so on, I really think you hit the mark with that. Um, but and the slightly more serious question is, what do you gain from Twitter? I mean, what do, you, what do you use it for and how do you benefit, aside from having a laugh now and again? 
Sure. I, I would say the, the original motivation probably was closest to having a laugh now and again, to, to your point. I think that, you know, I have found it's an interesting and useful tool for content. Uh, when you think about, you know, typically people who run these kind of businesses uh, don't have a lot of, of, you know, maybe you show up on Bloomberg TV occasionally or, you know, you have a, a bit of a fairly targeted media exposure. But, you know, it's a, Twitter's a platform where you can put ed simple educational content out there and people engage with it. I think one, one area that I really enjoy uh, and that uh, people talk about a lot is the derivatives interview questions where I think the, the genesis of that, I don't even remember when, but I wrote up some interview question type of thing that was on my mind and, you know, posted it and it got a, people were really interested. It got a ton of engagement. And then next week, everybody was asking where the, you know, where the interview question is. And I think what's behind that is really um, the way that I think about those questions is, you know, there's different levels of seniority, but it's all like things that you would only know having had some experience on a trading desk working in practice. It's not the type of things that are like brain teasers for the, for the kid coming straight out of college. And there really aren't resources on that kind of thing, right? There's not, there, there, are, there are some books out there on, in targeted areas, but you know, people constantly ask, oh, where can I go to read to, to learn about these things? And it's like, look, it's really hard, actually. Most, a lot of this stuff is like industry knowledge that you build up sitting next to the senior trader for, for four years on the desk at Goldman. Understood. I mean, what I use it for is largely as kind of a bespoke news feed, you know, where I can pick and choose what I want to read about. And that level of customization is attractive. And that gives me kind of a, perhaps an artificial segue into what you do at QVR, which is, as far as I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you create bespoke or customized solutions or blends of your relative value program and your tail risk hedging program for various clients. Maybe you can say something about that without giving away the shop, so to speak. Sure. And I don't know that we're not a very secretive organization by, by any means. So yeah, I guess the way to think about QVR is so we have an absolute return business uh, where that looks like a typical hedge fund type of business that has uh, a strategy that, can, that exists in a commingled product and also in separately managed account products for, for different kind of clients. And absolute return, right, is really about trying to leverage, identify and understand and monetize dislocations in derivatives markets to make money over time in an uncorrelated way, right? So not a long ball thing, not a short ball thing, not a directional thing. Um, then we also run what we would call a solutions business, which is bespoke portfolios in a fund of one or similar type of format for very large institutions. Um, and, and I think the way, the way to think about it, and, and many times those are tail risk hedging programs. They don't have to be, they could be other things, but that's uh, one, of the, one of the most in demand types of services that we see. And I think the way to think about it is, right, there are some types of clients or some types of needs that are well fit by a nerdy, niche arbitrage strategy trying to eke out, you know, eke out some returns between the cracks. Um, it's a very niche thing, right? And it's somewhat complicated. And generally speaking, investors that have some experience in derivatives markets and understand those things are going to be attracted to that. There are, but there's many other types of organizations that don't necessarily need or understand or care about that stuff, but who would really like to just have a simple, scalable way to help offset uh, drawdown risk in big equity market crashes or other types of simple uses of options to solve problems that they have, right? And that's really what the solutions business is about. Yeah, I mean, one thing I like about what you do, and it's something we try and do as well, but um, is at least historically, a lot of the people who had who were in front of the pensions and other large institutions, they they were consultants. And these consultants didn't know a lot about trading. They didn't know a lot about hedging, they hadn't really been in the market, so they had very formulaic solutions for a lot of their clients. And somehow being able to tap into a group like yours, again, without knowing too much, that has an alpha generation process, that has an engine that they can draw from in their customized business, at least on the surface, seems very attractive. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, um, you know, consultant, it's a difficult 
problem to solve, right? Where you have, especially in the US, you have public pensions that are really understaffed that aren't, I think, as valued as professional organizations by the people who fund them as they should be, right? And so they really have to rely on external resources because they have small teams and they don't have, it, you know, it's not like in Canada where you have lots and lots of specialists across all kinds of asset classes able to really deploy strategies, you know, from the ground up. Um, so consultants really are, are part of what should fill that niche. And on some things, they probably you know, have enough experience and know when you're talking about simple asset allocation stuff. But just almost by definition, if it's a niche product uh, in derivatives markets, typically you don't expect consulting firms to have the staff with the expertise to really, to really look at that and understand that. So yeah, I think we bring a lot of that expertise. And the, the key, I think, thing with any, types of, any type of engagement on that side of the business, yeah, there's a ton of education. There's a very iterative research and discovery process with a client helping them figure out what is the problem they're trying to solve, how to think about it, how to frame it, how to, analyze, how to create a research project to figure out what the right thing to do is, and how to pull from the pieces of expertise that we have. And so it, I think, is, a, is something that people really appreciate. Yeah, understood. I mean, there are there are other alternatives for investors on the hedging side. I mean, there are even some ETFs that try and do it and so on. Um, can you talk about, without taking too strong a side, perhaps, the potential weaknesses of trying to get your hedging done in a product like an ETF? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the, the most important difficulty, right, is that uh, an ETF product Typically, again, there's going to be variation across the ETF products. Um, but if you take, I think there's, I forget the ticker, there's a tail ETF out there that buys like six month put options, for example. If you're to look at that product. I think it's TAIL, if I'm that not sounds, mistaken. That sounds right. Um, and again, perfectly reasonable yeah. idea, right? Yeah. Um, I think that the difficulty is when you look at that product, of course, it's buying a little bit of put options and then a massive amount of treasury bonds, right? And well, so isn't, isn't one of the issues there optics in the sense that, um, if you gear it up too much, it's going to have significant drawdowns and people won't want to buy it. Whereas if you run it in a way that um, looks palatable in terms of bleed, it doesn't do enough for a client in terms of balance sheet usage. That's right. So the cash efficiency of these products is extremely poor, right? And so I think when you think about a, a hedge, uh, there's, there's a variety of things you have to think about. But the it's it's very important. The whole point of hedging is to be able to hold risk asset exposure, and and therefore benefit from that risk asset exposure, right? And if you have a very capital intensive hedge that requires you to effectively cut dramatically your equity exposure in order to come up with the balance sheet to go buy the hedge, you you shot yourself in the foot. You sort of defeated the whole point of what what you're trying to do. I think. So the and again, there's going to be variations. Some ETF products are more leveraged, but yeah, to your point, when people are evaluating, I think there's a sense that when people are looking at an ETF, they're like looking at this long-term chart of the performance of an ETF. And for a hedging strategy, that's it's almost you know it's it's counterproductive to do that, right? Because the you, what you have to think about is the sizing, what's the appropriate sizing of the exposure of that hedge relative to the portfolio that you have and what's the interaction between the two, right? But people are sensitive to, 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 to this idea of the optics of what, is the, what do the returns look like. And so they try to de-risk these portfolios and it's exactly the opposite thing that you, that you actually want, right? So I think that's one, that's one big weakness. And then another big weakness to some extent, I think, and this can be mitigated, right? But in many cases, there's a desire to do something very simple and very mechanical in a in an in a ETF type of product in order to make it maximally transparent. And transparency is good, right? But but the when you do something very simple and very mechanical, the problem is then when you're successful and you attract a lot of assets, now you have a huge target on your back, right? Where every all the dealers are sending around the notes, hey, guess what? The CTF is going to be rebalancing tomorrow and they're going to be buying some huge amount of this thing. So let's all free front run it. And of course that happens, right? So you never want to be have a really big, well-known and predictable flow where you are forced to do something in the market that everybody knows about in big size, right? That just leads to bad performance. Yeah, absolutely. That's that you've sort of given, given me a segue to uh, my next question, which is, don't you find a lot of value in seeing the flows or the structural biases that go through various markets? I know you've uh, 
talked about this at great length, you know, about the reasons why there is a steep term structure on average in the S&P, the reasons why there is a steep put skew and so on. Um, these are all related to the ETF comment you made, and maybe you can, you can dive into that. Sure, absolutely. I, I think when, when we, so one advantage, of course, again, of this, uh, of the way the business works, where, where we have a large absolute return relative value program. And so we spend all day long thinking about what's cheap and what's expensive and why and what the flows are that are driving that. That, of course, then naturally informs anything that we're doing on the hedging side. Typically speaking, if you're trying to structure an efficient hedge, most likely you're going to want to be buying things that are oversold by some other structural sellers, and you're going to be wanting to potentially create different types of trade structures that maybe also sell a small amount of some very expensive things to help cut the cost of carry and, and, and so forth. Right? And so I think first and foremost, you know, lots of people start their process you know, arguably more in delta one than in derivatives, but with with back tests and with you know static ways of looking at the world. You know, I, I think that ultimately in derivatives, something is cheap because a bunch of people are selling it without regard for price, right? And that's usually easy to know about if you're paying attention, right? So if you think about, you know, you gave the example of the S and P term structure. When you think about in general flow patterns in in index options these days for the last several years, what you tend to find is very heavy oversupply of short-term options, lots and lots of selling of short-term two-week, one-month puts and calls for overwriting or underwriting or rebalancing as programs are pitched to pension funds, right? Income-style programs for retail. Really very few natural buyers on a systematic basis of short-term options. From time to time, there will be an event and there will be some tactical buying of short-term options by hedge funds, right? But there's no natural buyer of two-week two -week vol, right? Similarly, for very long-term options, think of, of 18 months, two years, three years, there's very heavy supply from retail structured product businesses, right, which have grown and grown and grown. And actually, for the first time this year in the U.S., issuance actually surpassed the South Korean market, which is historically the, the biggest market mm. for structured products. Right here, you've got retail investors uh, generating a yield in a structured note where they get a coupon in exchange for selling long-term crash risk and equity index. Right? So things, things where it's like you get an 8% coupon unless or until the S&P or the Nikkei or the HSCEI or the Eurostox goes down 35%. If that happens, you're just hosed. Right? So pure play, just carry generation by selling long-term crash risk. So that turns into selling, right? Banks issue those products and immediately hedge by selling baskets of 30 or 40% out of the money, three, two, three-year puts. And so there's very heavy supply at the back end. And then really in the post-COVID environment, what you see is a new world where there's a lot of client option demand that hadn't been the case the last few years, right? Lots of hedging, lots of people buying calls or call spreads to shape their beta views. Most of that is in the belly of the curve, people buy three month, people buy six month, people buy nine month, where they perceive there to be reasonable liquidity, but also not a lot of constantly needing to roll the position and, and so forth, right? So you start from the perspective of where are the flows, and then you look at the price and you, and you relate those two things. Without, you know, going, getting it, uh, going too much into what I do as a day job, um, or what you do, um, why is it that people are so keen to sell shorter dated options. I know that the time decay as a percentage of premium paid is particularly high, but aren't the tails the fattest over shorter horizons and you get more, I don't know what the word is, Gaussian type behavior over longer horizons? Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly right. right? I think the, 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 the evolution of that behavioral pattern, I think, is roughly so for long periods of time, historically, short dated options were pretty expensive. If you look back to the 90s and the 2000s, the, and there wasn't a lot of systematic selling of short-dated options. Option markets were smaller. Around, you started to see you know, banks writing papers about that, big asset managers writing white papers about that, SIBO um, writing white papers about that, investment consultants writing white papers about the volatility risk premium, and looking at strategies like Delta head straddles or selling variants, but from, for often for pitching to pension funds or real money, just simple things like call right or put right strategies. And those strategies looked really good in the 30-year back test as of, say, 2010. 
right? Because you didn't have institutional scale capital involved in those strategies, very heavy selling of short-term options. Those type of strategies then started to get a lot of traction, right? Takes a while because a pension fund writes a white paper, they pitch it to the clients, the clients understand that it takes a few years to get the board comfortable and then they have a approval process and then a and then you get a big allocation to to covered call writing right it's pitched as equity like returns with lower risk it's pitched as defensive equity and again in the 30 year back test it kind of looked good but then what you see is the vol term structure go down and down and down in front as more and more and more large real money asset owners start engaging in those kind of strategies and, and then you end up in a world you know the last several years where think of regime average short-term vol when things are quiet in the S&P is like 10 or sub 10, where it used to be more like 15. And the term structure is really, really steep, where it used to be relatively flat in front, right? So we basically took, you know, think of it as S&P option markets are big, but that doesn't mean that it's an asset class that global pension funds can like allocate 20% of their capital to. It's not that big <laughs> without changing the price and changing the risk premium dramatically. So I think that's basically the, the evolution story, right? Yeah, fair play on that. Um, what do you say to the guy who says, well, I'm a value buyer of the S&P or of individual names. And you know, if the stock goes up 10, 5% in the next month, I'd be a seller. You know, trading short term. So why not write calls against my position? How would you counter that sort of argument or the argument that, oh, um, you know, I'd like to buy some distressed stocks or indices. So I'm going to sell some puts that are out of the money. And if the market gets down there, well, I would have been a buyer anyway. So I'm happy to own the, own the underlying. What, what would you say to that sort of person? Yep. No, that's a, a very classic type of argument that you hear um, quite often among like retail brokers pitching these types of strategies to, to retail investors, right? It's a, it's a nice, simple story focused around entry and exit targets as opposed to around price and premium and risk premium, right? And you, you all, I think you always have to keep in mind anytime there's a, a story for why something is a good trade that doesn't have any component of what the price of the, of the, of the trade is, you got to have some questions, right? So let's suppose that I thought it was a good idea to be a buyer of a stock 5% lower. And so I sold a put for some very small, for a penny. Well, you're still, that put will make you a buyer of that stock down, down there, but you're only, but, but uh, you're giving up all the potential upside of the stock relative to owning it now in exchange to, for only having downside, right? So clearly something's wrong. You wouldn't sell that put for free or for an infinitesimal amount of money. The question is, are you getting paid enough to sell that put? to justify the risk of loss if the stock was to move down a lot, right? So it's, it's a, you'll get this, I think, false comparison between a put sale and a resting limit order to buy at that same price, right? I think the, what you have to keep in mind is, let's compare uh, that person who sold that 5% down put, call it a three month put, for example, to someone who just put in a resting limit order and was waiting and watching to buy at that price. Problem is then tomorrow we come down, there's bad earnings. The stock's down 5%. It's down to that strike price. Let's compare the two, the two scenarios of those two different people. The person who sold the put now just has a significant large mark-to-market loss on their put. That put is still open. It's got three months left to expiration, right? And they now have a lot of equity exposure down there. Um, if the stock rallies back, they're going to get that loss back. You know, good for them. But they can't go and buy and and buy the stock separately without adding significantly now to the exposure that they have and the potential loss that they could have, right? And so if the stock rallies back, all that's going to happen is they're going to get that premium back. They're going to get the, they're, sorry, they're going to get that mark-to-market loss back on the put. Whereas the resting limit buyer bought that, you know, did not take a loss, did not have a short put position. They bought that stock down 5% and then it rallied back and they made money, right? So these are two very different scenarios, right? The option writer actually gives up the, this, this pitch that they're somehow making a choice to buy the stock down 5%. It's totally the opposite. They're giving up the right to buy the stock down 5%, not having lost money, <laughs> right? Um, and they're giving that to the option buyer. That's what the option buyer is paying premium for. It might still be a good idea, but everything depends on how much are they getting paid to sell that put and what's the perceived probability of that, of that move down to that strike. 
Very good. Uh, let's take round two of this then, which is, um, let's say that the someone had a slightly more sophisticated view on this and said, okay, I'm going to look at implied minus historical. So I'm going to take the implied vol of the at the money option on the asset that I'm looking to trade, and I'm going to subtract off some trailing measure of realized volatility. Why, where can this fall short? Because I know a lot of people say, oh, implied is typically higher than historical, which is true. But in my view, this is an increasingly dangerous sort of metric to use given the jumpiness in markets and the lack of the potential lack of liquidity. Do you have a view on the dangers of using sort of naive screens to uh, set up um, potentially profitable trades? Yeah, no, I think this is this is a great question, right? So the you do tend to see people making simple claims like, oh, you know, trailing one month vol is only eight, but at the money is at 12 or 13, there's a big premium there, you can harvest it. Or cross-sectionally, right, here's the stocks where implied versus realized is really attractive. So these are the good candidates for um, for for selling ball on. So my, what I would argue, and I think I've, I you know hear similar feedback from other other people, is that there was a period of time in markets where relatively simplistic volatil- realized volatility forecasts performed okay as a as a forecast of future realized volatility, and implied versus realized signals. Um, had some profitability to them, either in a time series type of analysis or a cross-sectional type of analysis. It was always noisy, but there was a, a some significant, some positive benefit to those kind of signals. Uh, I think that has mostly gone away, uh, or entirely gone away. You can, uh, I think, in for some things that may be just a markets are more competitive than they were. So cross-sectional ball pricing is more efficient, for example, because there's more people who can look at realized versus implied ball and you know, do, do different things. But I think you, the other point that you made is very important, where what's really happened, I think the structural change in volatility over the last five or seven years versus before, it's not that volatility is higher. It's not really, on average. Volatility, on average over time, has been reasonably consistent for, through, through decades. It's the jumpiness of volatility or the bimodality of volatility, right, where uh, in recent times, we can experience uh, very, very low realized volatility for, for weeks or months and then suddenly have a quick transition to much higher volatility or volatility gaps, which reflects, I think, liquidity conditions and a, and a variety of different things we can talk about. And what that means is if you're, you know, hey, look, I'm going to make five points by selling implied at 13 because trailing realized is eight, that becomes particularly uninformative right? in a world where you have very poor predictability of realized vol based on simple like trailing realized vol metrics where you have this elevated probability of jumps. So, so, so let me give you a simple um, uh, example of this. So, you know, if you took the VIX as a proxy for risk for the global risk trade, which it isn't comprehensively, but still, um, we've had a lot more, say, 10 point plus jumps from a low base level, but we've also seen the VIX get smashed or mean revert much more rapidly than it used to. So it used to be maybe a Garch-type approximation was okay, where volatility spiked, but had relatively slow mean reversion back to some equilibrium level, again, using phrases loosely. Um, given that vol tends to spike from low levels hard, and that it tends to get smashed almost equally hard, what challenges do you face as a pro, and how do you adapt to that? Yep, great, great question. So, so certainly one thing that it does is it makes the the traditional volatility forecasting models that you used to use much less useful, right? Uh, I think it it focuses you more on identifying the um, rather than on you know forecasting this path of reversion of volatility to some kind of equilibrium level. You spend a lot more time thinking about identifying the conditions associated with an elevated probability of a spike. Right, um, right, and usually that's not some kind of smooth increase in in realized volatility. Right, uh, a lot of times it has more to do with divergences between ordinary close to close end of day volatility, for example, and what you see happening intraday, uh, and what you see happening in volume. Uh, I think that what you know one one way to think about this. 
there are a variety of reasons for why the current regime, I think, looks like this, right? Liquidity is, is certainly one of them. You have, I think, much more fragile liquidity conditions locally than uh, as, a, as a result, eventually, of kind of the de-risking of banks uh, through Dodd-Frank and Basel III and the, the, the reduction of a lot of the, um, the ability to warehouse and inventory risk. But I think another, another one is something that we talked about, but is this very heavy supply of short-dated options from, from the end-user community. If you think about one way to, to think about asset owners heavily engaging in short-term option selling programs like call overwriting and, and cash-secured put selling, uh, and uh, that's consistent actually with how they're pitched sometimes by, uh, by consultants or by the, the, the managers that use those strategies, in some sense, it's like a, sh a short-term rebalancing program, right? Where they say, wouldn't you like to, just like you said, wouldn't you like to be buyers of stocks lower and sellers of stocks higher? So shouldn't you have a call right program or a strangle selling program, which just does that for you? Right? Again, same, I think that's the wrong way to think about it, but I think, but it is true mechanically that when all those folks are selling calls to dealers and those calls are getting warehoused at some combination of on, uh, dealer desks and volatility arbitrage hedge fund desks. When the market goes down, we're all long gamma and we all have to go buy stocks. And when the market goes up, the opposite scenario. And that's a locally stabilizing phenomenon, right? So it causes lower close to close realized volatility locally when the market is around the set of overwrite strikes that people sold last month. Uh, but because the gamma profile of options is very localized for short-term options, uh, within a few percent of the strike, you have a pretty a lot of gamma. Once you're 5% away, much, much less. What that means is inherently the market has much more of this resistance mechanism towards significant movements intraday when the market's kind of in its recent range until it's sort of broken out, managed to break out of that range and get away from the, get away from that, uh, from that gamma. And we, and we, you know, that, that's something that I think conceptually is easy to understand. And also we just live and breathe it because we every day typically in normal markets are sitting on a big pile of that gamma because it's cheap. Uh, and so we are among those people that are out there buying stock when the market's down and selling stock when the market's up. <laughs> Un understood. Um, in these highly negative gamma zones, even even though you can expect exaggerated moves, you don't know which direction the market's going to go in. So in other words, if there is an initial impetus, dealers are short gamma on the downside, and the impetus is down, just a garden variety random shock, uh, the market may shoot down intraday. And conversely, if there's a bit of a random shock to the upside, it could kind of go into a sawtooth on the way up, melt up. So if you don't know the direction, you just know that moves are going to be exaggerated. Uh, what does that imply? That you just delta hedge around your long gamma position a bit more heavily or more actively or that you um, do something else? Yeah, absolutely. Good, good question. So certainly uh, it gives you a view on how you should delta hedge positions. So if you, you know, if you, if you take the view that you and a lot of other people are very long gamma and there's going to be a lot of resistance to an intraday rally or sell-off, you're more tempted to delta hedge more aggressively intraday when you, uh, when you're, after a gap happens. It, when, you, when you think that you're running into that zone where there's actually uh, more of a negative gamma impetus, to your point, you don't know in which direction, gamma is an, it's an accelerant, it's not a directional bias. Right. And so you're more tempted to really leave that hedging for the close. And you know there are there are other dynamics like March of 2020 saw a lot of negative gamma dynamics coming from various different places. I mean, one of them was was uh, variant swap positions that banks had on with tail risk sellers, and the that are that are exacerbating those moves into the close. And so you remember seeing okay, you have a big sell off day and the market's down eight, but then the market on close number comes out and it's. $30 billion of stock to sell and to no liquidity, and then you gap from down eight to down 12. And, you know, versus, of course, the, the very quiet conditions uh, you know, created by that localized long gamma. And I think the connection, which I should have made, you know, a minute ago, but the connection back to the regime is really, I think that this has something to do with the nature of this jumpy volatility regime, where you can move from, you move from what seems very quiet 
you might see some turbulence under the hood as markets are trying to move, but they're kind of being stabilized by, by hedging. And then you finally break out of that zone, you finally get a big enough move, you start to get some of the feedback effects from systematic sellers like ball control indexes and CTAs and so forth. And so you have these very locally, you know, locally stabilizing, but then amplifying beyond some point market microstructure aspects, which again, weren't really there 15 or 20 years ago, uh, creates you know, very different market behavior. Very good. I mean, suppose that you knew that there was a huge amount of open interest 5% down with one with a few weeks to go in the S&P. Uh, is there a way you could trade around that high concentration of gamma where dealers may have to, as you nicely pointed out, act as an accelerant by trading nearby strikes? Is there some intuition you could supply in that direction? In other words, if the market gets anywhere near there, it has the potential to slam through. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, one thing that it immediately implies that is not immediately intuitive to people and is worth thinking about is usually when there's strong dealer positioning in strikes. So for example, there's like a really big short strike from some client trade and a lot of dealers have it on. That'll be reflected usually in market pricing, right? So like skew through that strike range will be really steep. And you will see, and so the, the natural first inclination is, oh, skew is really steep in that, you know, down there. I should be short, I should be short skew in that, in that strike range. Um, and it's more complicated than that. It doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong, but you have to keep in mind the reason that skew is steep in that particular strike range and that particular maturity is because there's a crowded dealer short positioning there. And dealers are going to get squeezed in that scenario. And if the stock is down 5% down towards that strike relatively close to expiration, there's going to be a lot of vol buying in that strike in that strike range that's going to need to happen to elevate that. And, uh, you know, when you talk to, um, and as a result, there's a negative expectancy from that scenario that you have to bake in to how are you thinking about that. So a naive kind of, well, I think long-term spot vol, so skew is all about like spot vol covariance, the fact that I have to, if I'm short skew, I have to buy vol as stock goes down towards that strike. Uh, if you have a naive long-term view on spot vol covariance, and then you're applying, oh, this skew is really steep, so I should be able to make X. No, you're, you're totally wrong about that. <laughs> because the expectancy of that scenario where the spot's going down there, you're going to be, vol's going to be spiking much more than your long-term case. The reason that skew is really steep is because dealers are crowded in that short. So I think there's, a, there's another layer of analysis that you have to do around uh, around crowded positioning and how it reflects in price. Well, I know I know we're not too focused on day-to-day -day fluctuations on this show, but um, can you say anything about what happened a week ago? So today is December the 10th, uh, 2021. Uh, last Friday, um, there was quite a disconnect between moves in the S&P and moves in the VIX. Do you have any, and in preceding days, the same was true, but do you have any vibe on what happened there and uh, whether it could happen again? Yeah, absolutely. So we get, we were thinking about this obviously a lot last week and, and uh, have clients ask quite a bit about it. So I, I think our view is the, so the price action, I think was, it was tempting for people to guess that there must have been some crowded, concentrated short ball positioning out there that was getting squeezed. Uh, I don't actually think that was the case. Um, generally speaking, a lot of the risky short tails, over leveraged short vol positioning in the market blew up in 2020 and hasn't really come back. Um, the, I think generally speaking, what, what, what you really saw happen in late November and early December was a pretty rapid de-risking of the end user long equity community, both in hedge funds and in more traditional asset managers. So a lot of folks getting worried about the Omicron variant, getting worried about tapering, wanting to take some risk off the table into the end of the year. And uh, some, some of that came through equity selling, but a lot of it came through put buying, just people going out and buying a one month 10 delta put to get themselves through the end of the year and you know, have a fresh start in January, right? And if you have a whole lot of buying of one month puts, you know, that's, that moves vol up a lot, that moves the VIX up a lot, in a, especially in an environment where, first of all, it's December coming into the holidays. You think of like the Black Friday shortened session, there's just not much liquidity on a day like that. Um, and, and then second of all, this regime is one where there's not a lot of supply, there's not a lot of accounts and balance sheets that can quickly supply a lot of tail risk, right? 
Um, banks can't just go out and write very, very large amount of 10 delta puts and, you know, short a little stock against it, right? Risk constraints are way tighter than they used to be, right? And there's not a lot of uh, volatility hedge funds that can, are going to do that either. Uh, and so you just don't have the supply to absorb that much buying pressure on short-dated puts that quickly. That's going to spike, that spikes the VIX quite a lot. And relatively small S&P drawdown, I think around 4% or so. Um, a lot more pain than that under the hood in certain sectors. Obviously, unprofitable technology stocks getting getting really hammered. But um, I, I think really it was it was that it was just lots of put buying to get to get folks hedged up for the end of the year into low liquidity and low supply. And then that to your point about how quickly vol can come back down. We're not all the way back down yet, but something like that that's a really short term excess demand. Once that, once that excess demand has kind of passed through the market, for the most part, you expect it to, to, to revert back as fa- almost as fast as it, as it started because, again, into people selling into illiquid conditions. One more equities question, because I know I've been fairly equities focused uh, so far, which is uh, about dispersion. Uh, I know dispersion trading for equities was huge during the dot-com bubble. It had episodic successes. After that, I think it's probably less popular now. I, you, I'm happy if you correct me on that. What are the changes in car, implied correlation or dispersion dynamics that you have seen over the past few years? And does the rise of passive have anything to do with that? Sure. Yeah. So, so dispersion, I would, I would actually characterize dispersion as, as quite popular uh, these days. Um, probably a little bit more popular before, um, before March of 20. But uh, there are standalone dispersion funds. There are uh, vol businesses that have dispersion as a big component of them. There are banks that offer dispersion as a total return swap style QIS strategy. And you have a decent amount of clients in those. So we, do, we run internal correlation and dispersion strategies, which are very dynamic. Uh, what, generally speaking, I think what you've seen over the last several years um, so, you know, I, I would, we generally think in terms of the, the spread between weighted average single name components and the index, which I think is a much more market neutral concept than, uh, than implied correlation, which is a very directional, uh, a very directional variable goes up when ball goes up. What you, what you've seen is there was a, there was a regime of, of pretty low and range bound implied spread or, uh, where you had. Um, not a lot of excess single name ball relative to the price of the index. That would correspond to a higher implied correlation. Um, in the, it, through, call it 20, uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, where single names just weren't that volatile. There wasn't, um, you know, retail investors like they had been for many years before weren't really doing much uh, trading in single names. Um, there was, there wasn't as much option demand in uh, net option demand in single names. And you had this sort of subdued ball environment and subdued uh, subdued single name ball environment. March of 2020 really changed that. So March was very volatile. And at first it was kind of a high correlation panic situation. But then it very quickly morphed into massive factor rotation and sector rotation dynamics, right? Where you had, um, you had, Think of like the reopening basket versus the dirty industry basket, or the you know versus the stay-at-home basket. You had Zoom skyrocketing and tech names skyrocketing, and you know cruise ships and Hertz getting destroyed and so forth. Uh, and you, there were days when days when you had you know those emails going out about how it was a ten standard deviation factor move day and all this kind of stuff, right? So that really translated into in, incredible single name volatility for quite a long time. Um, you, we reached record levels of the single name versus implied spread. In late uh, in late 2020, early 2021, retail investors were also a part of that. Right, you had this huge transformation of retail option trading, where retail suddenly became aggressive traders of Tesla and mega cap tech and pushing option volumes through the roof. That came out some in the in the summer, in the spring and summer of 2021, back to more normal levels as some of that retail volume quieted down. But then that actually amped again. In, in early November, and you saw explosion of those spreads back to nearly to kind of record high levels. So you have generally now we're in an elevated volatility regime, not just an in index, very much in single name. And so implied correlation levels are actually relatively low considering where volatility is. I think that's you know reflecting much more aggressive trading in single names, much more realized volatility in single names, continued sector and factor rotation dynamics. Yeah, I mean, was, isn't it true that in, say, 2008, 
long correlation was thought to be a tail hedge. And to see it not work so well in 2020 at certain times must have been a shock to many people. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a, there's a common uh, thing you hear people say, which is that in a crisis, all correlations go to one. Um, it's not true. So some correlations go up a lot, others drop a lot. Cor basically, correlations are very unstable, in, you know, and there's going to be a big change in the pre and the post shock, right? But if you look at 2008, actually, so a market neutral dispersion trade was monstrous. So short correlation was monstrously profitable in 2008 because you had, again, massive sector rotation. You had, there were days where financials were limit up and energy was limit down and then vice versa the next day, right? It was like the banks were coming under pressure, but we still had this whole peak oil story and like oil was going to 120 bucks. And so you had, actually it was, it, uh, it worked out very, very well to be long to be short correlation in 2008 mm -hmm if you were on a market neutral hedge ratio. Now a typical, like a theta neutral type of, of correlation trade is very, very short vol and short tails and that got hosed just because you're short too much index. But um, so I think that's, that I think surprises people who kind of have this, I, this, this notion in their head that it must always be that all assets become like, you know, perfectly correlated in a, in a, in a crisis. And, and certainly there's also a point to point versus end to end thing, right? So dispersion, if you're delta hedging every day, I mean, you could have a path where all stocks are down 50% over a quarter in a huge crash, but there's a lot of decorrelation along that path on a day-to-day -day basis. And a dispersion trade that's delta hedging every day, of course, is going gonna, is gonna to capture that. Uh, quickly going back to your RV strategy, I mean, obviously you're going to be spreading certain options against other options and some spreads are relatively safe in some ways, you know, Vertical spreads are safe because you're just trading different strikes with the same maturity. Calendar spreads get a bit more dicey. Cross-asset spreads get even more dicey. Is the issue just to size the riskier stuff down? Or is it uh, get, assuming the same edge? Or is it something where you can control by delta hedging actively or trading around the position? Yep, um, but very good question. So I think in general, um, any any uh, position or sub-strategy within an overall portfolio should be sized uh, relative to its risk-reward as compared to other positions and, uh, and also relative to kind of its expected co-movement with other, other positions, right? Where positions that are expected to be risk-complementary to other positions, you might size you know, bigger relative to the risk-reward and so forth. So positions that have more risk coming from greater basis risk between the long and the short and therefore more P&L volatility, um, if, if they have the same edge as another position with lower basis risk, would certainly be significantly smaller. Um, there's a, there's always a spectrum of the amount of basis risk between a long and a short. Um, from our perspective, so we really think of relative. I mean, a relative value trade. Um, the way that we think about it is is certainly one where there's a material risk reduction in the overall hedged position with the long and the short, relative to either leg on a standalone basis. That seems like yeah, of course, obviously, duh. But there's a lot of spread trades you see people might do. You'll see people say, oh, I really like long, long interest rates volatility versus short equity volatility here. Um, there are, of course, scenarios where both of those balls go up a lot and it feels like a hedged position. But if you look historically, there's lots and lots of episodes of one moving in one direction, the other one moving in the other direction, they're not really hedges, they're not very well correlated, and a, that long short position might well actually be a riskier position or barely a risk reduction relative to either thing. They're really two separate trades that don't correlate very well with each other that one might look at on a, on a directional basis, right? So I think that for, for in our strategies, generally speaking, uh, we tend to have lower basis risk type of exposures. We don't like, you know, cross asset class spread type of trades. You see, I think that when people think about volatility relative value, historically, I think the things that often come to mind is managers that were just always like long European vol and short S&P or long Asian vol and short S&P or long treasuries vol and short S&P. Um, we really don't take those kind of exposures for the most part because we very rarely feel that they are attractive from a risk reward perspective and they're very sloppy and very risky uh, relative to uh, relative to term structure exposure and skew exposure and basis exposure between very closely related things. 
Uh, if you don't take a long short view though, is it fair to say or is it incorrect to say that if you're long enough vol, whether it's say in treasuries or equity indices, and there's a large enough systemic shock, you're going to make money either way? Generally speaking, if you're long enough vol and that vol is in the doesn't have too, too much basis risk to the thing that's really moving, then that should probably be the case, right? Um, but I think it really depends, like, if you took the example, this comes up all the time in our, when we're working on tail risk hedging projects with clients, everybody immediately asks about December 2018, right? They say, how would this portfolio have done in December 18? Did long vol even work in December 2018? Long equity vol worked fine, slightly less than your baseline case, very much depending on what the equity vol was. Um, but if you had a very clever one by three skew ratio trade, or if you had Indonesian you know, swaption receivers on the five-year, five-year, none of that stuff moved at all. Or actually, the skew went down. You probably lost money on your long skew, on your sort of vol neutral long skew positions. The point, because the point was that was a relatively large technical equity market sell-off driven out of the U.S. That, where there was nothing really going on from a global macro perspective to move the Euro-dollar vol or the Indonesian swaptions or the, you know, all of this type of stuff. Compare that to like a 2008, okay, you have a global systemic crisis with, you know, all kinds of risk across currencies and so forth, and, yeah, and all vols are going up quite a lot, some things moving differently than others, but you had a better, better correlation properties across you know, multi-asset class of all. So it really depends on the, on the type of scenario. Banging on a little bit more about fixed income, uh, I've heard you and, of course, many others talk about persistent distortions in the S&P vol surface. Do you have anything to say? Let's say we picked a market like the U.S. 10-year notes about the 10-year note futures options surface. Are there persistent distortions there? Sure. So I think similar kind of thing. If you if you follow those markets and you just ask the question, well, what do people do? Who does what kind of stuff in what size in those markets, right? And the the answer that you'll get back is, um, you know, for the, the first thing that people will say about any kind of uh, options on fixed income products is, well, there's this one very very large asset manager that we all know who really likes to sell them in sizes that you can't even imagine how big those sizes are, um, and you know we don't need to name names, but so that's the first thing that comes up. There's there's a very strong supply of shorter term options on on euro dollars, on treasury notes, on a, on a variety of, of things there. Um, there and keep and treasury bond options mostly that's shorter term options. So you're talking about you know one month, two month, three month kind of stuff. Um, the, the next thing that will come up in, in fixed income complex, people love to talk about Formosa bond issuance. Um, so that's typically outside of the futures complex. That's going to be like long-term swaption, dollar swaption vol um, getting depressed. From, uh, coming out of callable bond issuance in Taiwan linked to like insurance company demand. And it, like many things, a sort of an idiosyncratic set of historical circumstances that led to clients liking to do a certain thing that turns into a huge net supply of long-term. So long-term forward rates vol is usually inverted out at the back end of the curve. There's usually a mild positive carry. Um, it usually is quite low. It sometimes goes up uh, on, on big enough crises or big enough moves in, in rates. It usually goes down very quick again after that because there's so much supply. So it's one of those things where, uh, you know, like, like with many things, when there's when there's a position that's kind of a consens a cheap consensus good long ball position, it is hard, right? Because they're gonna the behavioral characteristics of those positions are that I'm long it, you're long it, all of our buddies are long it. We're we're losing money on it. We all try to sell it when it goes up, and there's too many of us trying to sell it, so it doesn't go up enough, and it goes right back down, and so forth, right? Um, and so there's sort of no free lunch in the sense of, of this is really cheap and obvious. We all know about it. We all have it on and it's, and as, and it works really great every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, I mean, I'll give you an even simpler example. You, let's say that you saw a huge one by three by two go by, go through in US or European short rates, let's say. Uh, so there's a distortion in the skew and you might say to yourself, either they know something they who will remain nameless know something about where short rates will get trapped or pinned, or I should be a buyer of that stuff. I mean, how does one think about this in terms of deciding whether the other side has an information-based trade or 
there's a there's an opportunity to trade around. Yeah, no, that I mean, it's a it's a great question, and it's and it's a really tricky question, right? So, like, the a, a starting point is um, in this in this case, you know, you probably know who who the end and in in tr- who the who that supply is coming from, and you can think through, you know, their flow pattern historically, uh, and you might have some informed empirical view on what tends to happen, uh, you know, over the over the life of the type those type of large trades that they do. Um, often, if they ha- if those type of trades have you know very strong, lo- they often have very strong localized pin characteristics, right? Where where you know that the street is 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 really long, a certain set of strikes, and if spot gets there, we're going to realize zero. Um, and so, it, even if it looks optically really cheap, you know you have to be careful. Uh, I think there's no one simple answer. I think that the certainly. Understanding in any in any big market like that, understanding who are the big five or ten the, the five or ten accounts that are doing huge trades that you actually see and you understand and you get color on and that are moving price materially, um, and keeping a database of their trades and actually being able to do some real research on their flow patterns and how informative they are. I think that's a, a useful project to do. It's a pain in the butt because. You know, there's the limited ability to automate that kind of thing. Um, as never it, ending as well. And it's never ending, um, but I think it's I think it's worthwhile. Very good. You've got a pretty colorful um, persona on Twitter, and I really enjoy it because it. If I were a rookie, and maybe I am a rookie, but if I were really a rookie, um, I would really appreciate having people who are pros going out and showing something of themselves. So. Uh, I think it's a great service you're doing, and uh, more power to you. How's the biking, by the way? The biking is good. You know, I don't get I don't get nearly as much biking in uh, as I did in the old days, but um, I do have that uh, that the uh, the Wall Street bets uh, biking kit, which always <laughs> gets a lot of always gets laughs on the road. But actually, mostly from there's a there's a, a Shiba Inu on the back for for Dogecoin, and mostly when people notice the jersey, it's somebody yelling something about Dogecoin. Which um, you know certainly certainly crypto is a, is a whole other bag of worms and, and not really a specialized focus of me. But um, you know hard to escape. It's funny. I was I was sitting at dinner last night and the lady next to me was was chatty and and, and she worked in tech and was pretty successful and turned out had like yoloed a significant percentage of her not <laughs> immaterial net worth on Dogecoin at fifty cents and lost tons of money. Um, you know the world is pretty That's crazy. Sorry. Yeah, I mean the the thing the thing that I think people may come away with on on all the stuff, the Twitter stuff and so on, is that at least I believe this. Please correct me if I'm wrong. That it's not as though running money is an eighty-hour-a-week job. It's more a lifestyle that, as you get, you know, you have a family and so on, you have to build around other constraints. So it's really more something holistic. But uh, I'll leave it to you to expand on that. Yeah, no, I, I think so. That's definitely, I think, something that intentionally, to some extent, comes out of uh, my Twitter feed. Where I think that there's one historical perception of hedge fund managers or whatever successful people in industry, which is um, it's a you know bunch of hard charging people who have no or who's you know, who don't deal with family stuff and who just like are, you know, crazy work all the time. And by the way, it's all dudes and it's um, all all dudes who played lacrosse at Yale. And like, um, you know, I think I, I'm very intentional about, you know, family. I have a family. I have a, a super successful professional wife who's really busy and, you know, as busy or more busy than I am. We do our best. We have a lot of help. Um, but family is really important. And, uh, you know, I, I go pick my, my five-year-old up from kindergarten at 2.30 on the bike, you know, every day, and uh, but then can get back to it. I mean, I think the pandemic has actually, it's funny, I mean, we feel very fortunate, but the pandemic has, um, you know, remote and flexible work has made it a lot easier for a lot of people, and, and, and certainly us. We're, in, we're in, on a more hybrid type of setup in the office where we go in sometimes, we're, at, we're working from home sometimes, and, um, and that makes it, I think, much more manageable to deal with family responsibilities sometimes. And I'm very open about that. And I know there's some people that are going to say, oh, like any time that he's spending picking up his son from kindergarten is time he's not spending on my portfolio. And, you know, 
that's that's fine if someone wants to have that reaction. But I think I'm there for for all the other people who um, are trying to be you know work with professionals in uh, uh, but how you know have families and have lives. And I think that's really important. Well, I'm in the, exactly the same boat as you. But uh, what I would say is that I'm sure this is c- consensus. But one thing that the, the pandemic has really done that's been positive, at least for me, is it's legitimized independent remote work. And I actually think a well-functioning team can, doesn't lose much working remotely. Yeah, no, I think um, it, it, it was a great exercise in that, you know, we were always relatively flexible in the sense that uh, I think most of my team is late 30s or early 40s, has kids, uh, you know, things come up, right? So we've always been flexible about, look, if you need to work from home today because of some circumstances with kid or whatever, like it's fine, you get your work done, you communicate well, and that's great. Um, and, you know, I had, again, I had that commute back in the old days flying every week between San Francisco and, and, uh, and New York um, and sometimes working remotely. Uh, the, what the pandemic did was it forced everybody to confront the reality of, okay, if we're just going to do this for a while and see if the whole world falls apart and see if our teams dissolve and see if it's a huge mess. And the answer was no, it wasn't at all, right? There's, you know, things people had to work out and get better at, but we have great, you know, the technology environment for it is great, right? I mean, we have our, our team Zoom that's just open all day long that has the trading room and has the operations room and has the business development room and has the software development room. And I can hop around between rooms if I'm at home and talk to you know people about what's going on. Uh, and we have, uh, or, you know, a very good technology infrastructure in general for for managing what we do, and that all generalized really well to a remote environment. So we, you know, it's been, to your point, um, it's it's really quite fine. And there are things that are great to do in the office, and it's nice to have in in client uh, in person client stuff. Um, but you you don't need everybody in the office a hundred percent of the time all the time. It's just not necessary. And have you heard the joke about the fundamental long short equity hedge fund manager, which was um, he had a policy on FaceTime for his employees. And the policy was this, if I see your face in the office too much, you're not doing your job. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Love it. And with that, I will hand it back to Niels. Thanks so much, Harry and Ben, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed learning about the difference between offering volatility strategies that focuses on entry and exit targets versus those that focuses on price and true value. And of course, I loved the end part when you spoke about the human and softer side of what it's like to manage money in today's world. Make sure you go and follow Ben's and Harry's work because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to portfolio protection and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as the series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime... Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.